0: Everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Manufacturing IT podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by Walker Reynolds. He's the chairman uh, of Intellect Integration, president of President and Solutions Architect at 4.0 Solutions. Uh, he's got a YouTube channel with thousands of subscribers, 250,000 plus views, helping people understand the complex concepts of Industry 4.0, Industrial IoT, and digital transformation in a really easy to consume. Uh, format. So, Walker, welcome to the pod. Uh, Nice to have you here.
1: Daniel, thanks for having me.
0: Funny enough, Walker, when I was uh, first launching a podcast last year, I was throwing it up to my network, you know, some suggestions, who would you like to see in the pod? And your name came up quite a lot. So it's uh, it's a real great to have you here.
1: Appreciate that, man. (laughs) I guess uh, (laughs) being controversial isn't always a bad thing.
0: No, I think you've, you've got a really good uh, profile online and I really enjoyed watching the videos that you've created. So uh, yeah, no, it's great. Um, so firstly, I was keen to understand, how are you pronouncing Industry 4.0? I hear it get called so many different things, 4.0, Industry 4. How is Walker Reynolds pronouncing it?
1: So it's it's Industry 4.0. We really talk about three terms, right? We talk about yeah. Industry 4.0. So we just I pronounce it Industry 4.0. Um, digital transformation and the industrial Internet of Things. We talk about those three concepts. They're probably three of the biggest buzzwords uh, that come up in conversations all the time. And you very sweet two camps. There's a there are really three camps. Camp number one is the people who don't understand the potential of those three things. Um, camp number two are the people who do understand the uh, potential of those three things. And camp number three are the people who are a little more jaded. I, they haven't realized the potential of those, sure. those three things. And this is where the term buzzword comes in. So our, oddly enough, our channel really started around just trying to correct misconceptions about <laughs> an industry 4.0, the industrial internet of things and digital transformation. And uh, the first v- videos that we ever did that really took off. I mean, we were doing content for like six months before I was ever in front of the camera, that was all accidental. It was, okay. it was, uh, it was my 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 uh, digital media strategist set up the camera and said, "Hey, Walker, I'd like you to go up on the whiteboard and explain what is IIoT, just for my editors." That was never supposed mm-hmm. to go live. That's why I wasn't okay. wearing a mic or anything. He's like, "Hey, <laughs> what is I? What is IIoT?" And so I just got up on the whiteboard and did it. And he published it to our YouTube channel and it, and it, it took off. And that's one of our, and, and a quick correction. We've, we've actually, we broke a million views. We're just over oh, wow. one, one million total views that happened last week. Actually, I think Friday wow. was when we went to a million, we got the thing from YouTube saying, congratulations, you just had your one millionth view. So.
0: Wow. Congratulations. Yeah. How, how, how long did it take to get the million views?
1: Um, so we are, I, you know, I was just talking about this this morning. I think we're at our, at the four year mark. Okay. so when you when you consider that um, our total available audience for what we're talking about is only about a million people on the whole planet right so the the total industry only makes up about a million people uh, we've got something like I think 17,000 subscribers on YouTube 70,000 across all platforms and then if you look at IIOT.University, um, university which is the online university where we train engineers and train executives okay. on how to lead industrial uh, digital transformation initiatives, but also how to be an engineer to support them. Uh, there's another 5,000 people in our Discord server and 500 paid students. Um, so th- there, we have a huge audience relative yeah. to what the the available audience is. So, but it did take about four years. I mean, it, it took a lot of people have asked us questions about you know, <laughs> you know, how do you, how did you take off and the and we took a very scientific approach to make sure that the content we were producing was providing maximum value to the audience. So we always ask three questions before we ever shoot a video. So any of you who want to get into doing digital media, um, my first recommendation is don't shoot commercials. Um, yeah. You know, content's all about uh, the commercial is in the description. If you've got yeah. something you want to sell or whatever, put it in the description of the video. If they're interested in you, they'll click on that. The video needs to be pure value. So question number one is what I'm, what I'm, what's the message I want to convey? So, what do I actually want to say in this video? Question number two is what do I want the audience to take away from this? What do I want them to take away? And that oftentimes that could be different than what the message of the video is, right? And question number three is what will the audience say the value of this video is?
0: Mm, Ask those three
1: questions. So ask those three questions before you ever shoot anything. And your audience will grow. It's like a moth to a flame. You're going to say things that resonate with a cross section of the audience and that, and the people who watch that video where it resonates, they're going to sub, they're going to come back and watch more. And, and that's how a community grows.
0: No, it makes sense. And it's obviously working for you guys. So congratulations on the uh, million plus views. So thanks. I'm sure it won't be long to 2 million now.
1: (laughs) It's it's exponential. Yeah. It's exponential.
0: God, God loves that compound growth. Um, Yeah. So, so talk to us a little bit about your journey, Walker, then. So how did you end up in industrial automation, digital transformation, and how did you get to, to where you are today?
1: You know, that's a, it's an interesting story. So I'm, I'm, I'm from Texas. I um, uh, was born in Dallas, um, lived in Dallas, Texas until I was seven. And my mom passed away when I was, was young, um, and uh, at, at, when I was seven. And that's how I ended up in upstate New York. So I grew up in upstate New York. In an adopted family and in what is now today called the Rust Belt. So sort of in farming communities where manufacturers had opened up uh, manufacturing facilities in the 19, from the 1920s, all the way through the 1970s, manufacturing was all over the place in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what happened was I, I observed with my own eyes, the manufacturing exodus from the Northeastern United States during the 1980s. I saw that while I was in school, while I was in middle school and high school. And I knew what the impact was because I saw Mm. it. I mean, I literally watched communities. uh, They, they just succumb to blight. I watched families go bankrupt, lose their homes. I watched people Uh. go from middle-class and upper middle-class lifestyles to, you know, working on farms again and working in gas stations. And I mean, and, and, and then over the course of the nineties, I started to see the, you know the decline in social discourse which came from that so I a I grew up watching the negative impacts of not having a viable manufacturing sector in your yeah. economy and then I, I went to school um, so I originally went to an Ivy League school my freshman year and I transferred and um, i um, I studied sociology and 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 I had a focus in labor. I took a couple of different courses on labor and what I learned in my education was that the manufacturing exodus didn't happen because corporations were greedy, which is what I was told in the 1980s, right? That's, um, but the reason it happened was because when the third industrial revolution really took off in the 1970s, that is the automation of industrial processes, programmable logic controllers, the transition from relay logic to computer logic, running automating processes, the United States lagged behind Germany and Japan in the adoption of those technologies. Okay. Right. So, and we were, we were late to the game. And so what happened was when U S manufacturers were getting crushed by, um, you know, overseas manufacturers because they had optimized their automa- their business pro- or their manufacturing processes with automation um, in order for American companies to remain viable, they had to quickly, Reduce costs, and the way they did that was to go chase cheap labor. Yeah, they they were they were compelled to do that because they had in that first ten year window where they could have leveraged technology to do more with less, they didn't. Then they came back. They came back stateside, and they spent the 90s and the early 2000s doing all their automation. So, what happened was, I so now I sort of learned what's the impact of losing many manufacturing and then why did it actually happen and then yeah. how i got into industrial automation was totally by accident i put myself <laughs> i put myself through college i got a um i worked in an arcade i got a um uh when i worked in the arcade i i was i've always been sort of a handsy person the guy who wanted to know how everything worked mm-hmm. and uh the the arcade sent me to get this 6 months training in dc control systems. So, uh, I learned how to work on five volt DC control systems. I learned how to read IEC drawings. And my first job out of college was working in a salt mine. And I just had a labor. I just took the first job I could get. And I, I was a laborer, but I happened to be working in the maintenance department, supporting the electricians and mechanics doing their jobs. And at, you know, sort of confluence of events, manufacturers, uh, our, they had just the mine had just upgraded to all um, German-engineered mining equipment from conventional uh, uh, electric over hydraulic um, equipment in the United States. They bought computer-controlled, all remote-controlled, okay. PLC-controlled from Germany. Nobody in our mine knew how to work on it. And we <laughs> had this we had this roof bolter out in the middle of nowhere um, that cost six hundred thousand dollars. It hadn't run in a year. And my boss, a guy named Joe Rolf, who is still, you know, he's the, one of the key mentors of my, my career. He knew that I knew how to read the German drawings. I could read German and I could read okay. IEC drawings. And so he just asked me to go with an electrician one day to translate the drawing for him so he could troubleshoot this, this bolter. That's all I was there for. Mm-hmm. Day, day one, the electrician basically gave up. And, you know, I, I have no idea what's wrong here. And I asked Joe when I came back the next day, do you mind if I give this a shot myself? And he said, sure, go ahead. So I'm just this guy who drives a loose truck <laughs> who can read the drawing. And I go out to this roof bolter that hasn't been run in a year and I troubleshoot it all day long. I learn I learn how to connect to the PLC, read the command line interface. So it was all command line PLC programming. I learned how to read the command line interface. I, I learned the systems just by looking at the IEC one line drawing. And then I troubleshot it all day, second day, didn't get it to work. And then on day three, I figured out what the problem was. It was actually a short in a piece of conduit. And it basically, as the <laughs> roof bolter was running, the short would, the short would, the wire would pinch and it would, it would tell the PLC that the top proc switch had been met, even though it hadn't. And the okay. machine would stop. So I fixed the short, I run the machine. And, and, uh, as soon as I hit the start button, it had drilled, it, it bolted the roof, and from that moment forward, I became the SMAG guy. I was all, suddenly <laughs> I'm the expert. Yeah. I, know nothing, I know nothing about three-phase electricity. I know nothing about hydraulics. I know nothing about thermodynamics. So um, basically from that moment, they, they put me into an apprenticeship program. I learned mechanical apprenticeship. I went through mechanical apprenticeship, then electrical. And at the same time, I went back to school and uh and i i went back to school and got a degree in electrical engineering over the next 3 years so on, and okay. from there from there i charted a path so okay. what i experienced when i was a kid to what i learned when i was in college to what i learned in my very first job and now i've got this whole new education starting i charted this path i'm going to go work for lots of manufacturers i'm going to learn everything about manufacturing i'm going to become an expert in the technology and then hmm. i'm going to go become a systems integrator and I'm going to teach manufacturers how to use technology to do more with less. And at the time, I thought I was going to be doing it within the paradigm of the third industrial revolution. But what happened magically five years into my career, the fourth industrial revolution started. And and then the, the path adjusted a little bit. And that's that's where we are today. I, I worked for four different manufacturers and four completely different processes over a 10 or 12-year period. Then I worked for two systems integrators, and then I went into business for myself and 49 companies later, I am where I am. Right
0: now. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a fascinating journey, Walker. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And the bit that I, I know, so obviously I'm coming from a recruitment background into transformation and industry 4.0. And I guess, as you mentioned, five years into your career, the, the paradigm shift between 3.0 and 4.0. So in your experience, what are the kind of key differentiators between a professional working industry 3, 3.0 and then somebody who's ready to jump into 4.0? What are the key differentiators for you?
1: Well, that's a good question. So there, there's a little background here, right? So anybody who, who works in manufacturing technology, okay? So whether that's, you're, you're an industry 3.0 professional, which is industry 3.0 is simply, simply put, it is the automation of manufacturing processes. That yeah. is the plant floor. That's what industry 3.0 is. Industry 3.0, by taking computer technology and putting it on the plant floor and then connecting everything on a network, made the fourth industrial revolution possible.
0: Mm. The
1: fourth industrial revolution is the automation of business processes, okay? Digital transformation is the journey between going between an automated manufacturing process to an automated business process, right? Yes. And, And that starts with solving problems on the plant floor. So there is a stack. There's a stack. That we all work within and that stack is the automation stack or the automation pyramid plc edge on the you know plc edge yep. hmi scada mes erp and then cloud right mm. the fundam- there's one fundamental difference between an industry 3.0 professional and industry 4.0 professional and that is this the industry 3.0 professional specializes in one of those layers of the stack They're either their their specialty is PLC edge programming, Mm -hmm. embedded control, uh, microcontrollers, PLC programming. Their specialty might be HMI, Factory Talk View, might be SCADA, might be MES. They may have some fluency in other layers of the stack, but you in Industry 3.0, you are a specialist. You specialize in a a technology. Industry 4.0, you have fluency across the entire stack. So as a professional. As a professional you are no longer saying I am a control logics plc programmer. What yeah. you are saying is is you know I am an IEC uh, function block programmer or I am yeah. a python programmer or I am a structured text developer and I have fluency across the full automation stack. So that's number 1. Yeah, number 2 sense. Number 2 in industry 3.0 professionals they were primarily focused on theory of operation and sequence of operations, right? So industrial processes, I'm focused on theory of operation and I'm focused on sequence of operations. But the industry four professional is focused on theory of operation and sequence, but they add in business and industrial process workflow as part of their expertise. And what do I mean okay. by this? If, you're, if you work for a manufacturer or you work for a systems integrator, If you're a a manufacturer, answer this question for me. How does your organization convert a sales order, which is in your CRM, into a manufacturing order, which is in your ERP system, into work orders, which are in your MES system, into industrial um, monitoring, which is in your SCADA system, into industrial control, which is in your PLC HMI system, into inventory, which is in your web warehouse management system, into ARAP, which is in your finance system, into the shipping component. If you can't answer that question, okay, then your organization is, is very, very early in its maturity in Industry 4.0. The Industry 4.0 professional can answer that question. They understand the business process. Okay. Everyone in the organization knows how we convert sales into manufacturing, get paid for it, And sell more stuff (laughs) everyone knows those things in an industry 4.0 environment
0: you've got a really easy way of breaking down these complex areas walker into really take away chunk, golden nuggets if you will it's a really really good talent you've got so i appreciate that and i guess one of the areas that we tend to find so we work with software companies who are selling tech we work with manufacturers and then we work with the integrators in between so Typically, you know, we're either looking for somebody who's got experience with MES as such. That's our kind of core business area. So we often are asking our clients, do you want someone who understands the controls, the automation, the machinery level, and who's then worked up through that pyramid? Or would you prefer someone who started at the top in the cloud layer and maybe worked down? In your experience, Somebody starting off their career or in the early phase, what would be the best direction of travel for them? Would it be up through the layer or down through the layer?
1: Uh, definitely. I would definitely recommend up. So, yeah. start the best place you can start is on the plant floor. Okay. Yeah. Um, here's why there is a plethora of people who work on the, you know, the, we talk about ITOT convergence, right? Mm. Where does ITOT convergence happen? It happens at that MES layer in the automation pyramid. That's where industri- or information technology and operational technology meet, right? MES is the intersection. If OT and IT are circles in a Venn diagram, MES is where the intersection happens, yeah. okay? Uh, ERP is wholly IT, SCADA is wholly OT, MES mm-hmm. is equal parts IT and OT, right? That's where yeah. the intersection happens. There is a plethora of people, there are a plethora of people who have the IT expertise, who are gifted IT professionals, they (laughs) understand software development lifecycle, they understand agile project management, they understand that what I want, the the problem I need to solve is a function of what I know, therefore, the more I know, the more problems I'm going to come up with. They already understand that, okay? There's a plethora of those people who have no OT experience. Yep. Okay. Great. And that and that the lack of OT experience is what cripples them as they're trying to become an industry 4.0 professional. Cuz it's really hard to go from the carpeted side of the business to the <laughs> concrete side of the business to get your expertise. It is much easier to as I come out of school to request a job on the plant floor. Spend yeah. my first year learning operations and then move up, move up yes. the stack. It's much easier to do that than it is to go the other way around because the truth is, IT is a much more standardized, um, more, much more standardized environment to work in. Uh, compliance and security generally is the primary focus of IT. Sure. Operational technology in the OT side of the business and operations, production is king. Period. Yeah. Okay. You're you're doing nothing but snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. (laughs) Everything. Everything is about we have to figure out a way to make this work. There's no such thing as hitting the pause button and coming back six days later because the (laughs) work the work order's got to get done. I think everyone that that doesn't mean that you can't build a team made out of people who have no OT experience. But what, the, what, but you need to have people with OT experience on that team, and the people who don't have the OT experience need to defer to the OT subject matter experts when you're making when whenever there's a conflict, right?
0: No, that makes perfect sense. So obviously, given that convergence between IT and OT, and that um, MES sits in the middle of that Venn diagram, what I'm finding specifically is that. We have a far bigger talent pool of candidates who are coming from that I.T. side versus candidates who are working out from the shop floor, O.T. side. I don't know whether that's because there's a bigger investment in .IT. It's seen as, I don't know, more, more, more 21st century, I don't know, but how do you think we start to kind of maybe bridge that gap and, and get a bigger flow of candidates coming from the shop floor or wanting to work on that you know, uncarpeted, concrete side of the, uh, of the business?
1: Well let's say two two things. Um so number one when I I was the first person in my family to go to college and um you know I grew up really really poor. Um but I was a smart kid. I was you know I was a a really great student in high school, you know just one of those you know I I shouldn't have been as them. smart as I was, right, you know? <laughs> and when I graduated from college I I put myself through school and when I got my first degree I threw actually it was my second degree. I threw my own <laughs> graduation party. <laughs> And my dad came to my, this is before I got my job working in the mine. And my dad came to my graduation party and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, You know, I'm really proud of you. I can't tell you how proud I am of you, but I want you to know your education starts today. Not a, not a, nothing you learned in school makes a bit of difference in the real world. Now, that was obviously hyperbole, right? I learned <laughs> things in school that, that, that were valuable. But what my dad was trying to tell me was that, I need my my first day of my real education was the first day of my first real job. Mm -hmm. And he told me he he's always told me there is no substitute for uh, experience. And I learned this accidentally. I'm very grateful for this, by the way. Um, When I one of the things that I learned by starting I started in a labor position, shoveling belts, by the way. I mean, I I started at the absolute bottom, driving on the conveyor system and shoveling belts with another guy. I was the lowest paid guy in the mine, although I made good money. Um, The reason I took that job was because I was getting ready to get married. I was going to buy a house and I just needed a job. And I I grew up poor. I wasn't too, I wasn't afraid of hard work. I had worked on farms growing up. So Mm. I wasn't afraid of being a laborer, even though I had a degree. Uh, Here's what I learned. The people, I was more sophisticated because I was educated. That is, I read more books. I spoke more articulately. I understood the value. I I understood soft skills. I had read Carnegie. I had read Jim Collins. (laughs) Uh, What I learned was that the people who worked on the plant floor, they don't read uh, Collins. And they don't mm. read Carnegie, okay? But what they do is they master their craft. Mm. And it seemed like every single time I had a problem, I had to answer some question. Why is it that we do it this way? Or why do we do it that way? If I asked a manager or a supervisor, they generally couldn't give me the answer. Okay. But if I asked a production worker, they didn't just tell me why is we, we did that way. They told me why it was wrong and how we should do it. Okay. And so, and so across my entire career, that first four stops where I worked in mining for five years and then I worked in the printing industry for two, steel industry for three, tier one automotive for two. I early on, I adopted a philosophy that the people who work on the plant floor are the smartest people in the organization. And therefore, they're the ones I want to learn from. Sure. And I believe if we teach that in school. So, number one, if we teach in school, that the, the smartest people in a manufacturing operation are the people who've been doing it for 25 or 30 years on the plant floor. They're mm. who you want to learn from. More people, more people are going to want the position there. Okay. Yeah. Number, number two, education has to change and it is changing. Okay. We need to augment professional training with our core education in college. And what I mean is this, there's a university, Penn College, Penn Tech, yeah, outside of Pittsburgh, Cord works with us at IOT.University, a guy named Jeff Rankinen, who's one of the professors there. I think he's the department head in the automation group and the robotics and automation group. We work with him and the dean of his school. They, we coordinate with them where their students are getting the, the university education in robotics and automation, but at the same time, they are participating in our augmented ed- education at IOT.University. They're okay. learning the, app, the application skills. Yes. So they're getting their the education needs to change. Instead mm-hmm. of getting your first exposure, your junior year co-op or your junior year internship, you should be getting that exposure from your freshman year, day one in an augmented education. And how does that work? Um, Jeff Rankin at Ben College, he has his students sit through our live Q&A podcast every Tuesday afternoon at 12 at o'clock central. His class, that class that's in there, they actually watch okay. our podcast and they see use cases. They're seeing professional, they're they're seeing professional analysis of the actual work that is augmenting the education they're getting in the lab. And I think that that's gonna happen more and more and more. That's how education is gonna transform because somebody had commented the other day, you don't learn how to develop SCADA systems in college. What you learn is the software development lifecycle. You learn the software stack, you know, backend, API, UI. You learn those tools. You learn, you get a little bit of introduction into MATLAB. You dabble, but you don't Mm -hmm. learn how to build a system from from scratch. You don't learn um, how to convert control theory and an alarm matrix into, you know, ISA 101 visualizations. You learn that piece of it on the job. And what we need to do is give students a head start. That's what, we need to use the internet, we need to use social media to teach students these skills before they get their first job.
0: I can see that, that makes a lot of sense of course. And I can see that somewhere that you're passionate about. So no, it's really great. And if we can help share that message, then. Um, we, we can start to develop that further. Now that makes a lot of sense. So which industries are, are you most experienced with Walker? So you mentioned, obviously you started in mining and I know you've done a bit in oil and gas as well. What other industries have you spent your time
1: in? Uh, we've worked in basic, I would say the only industry that we avoid is semiconductor primarily mm-hmm. because um, Sex Gem is the, the standard and the protocol technology that's sort of underlying all of, of semiconductor. And um, we generally just stay away from semiconductor for the most part. That doesn't mean that we haven't worked in sure. semiconductor. So, but, uh, and then the second industry that we try to avoid if we can is life sciences, pharmaceutical. Uh, right. We only work with life sciences company who, who really need our help. And here's why, and you had mentioned, you touched on it. It's a highly regulated environment. Um, which regulation is not the problem. It's the documentation. If you, look at the, if you look at the turnover, engineers who go into life sciences, go into um, biosciences, who go into pharma, um, it's about 80% documentation. So validation mm-hmm. of data is really, really important. You do a lot in documentation, and that's not for every engineer. Not every engineer wants to spend 80% of their time just documenting their work. Um, and so we we try we really in this employment market, we really try to focus on keeping turnover low, which that's a philosophy in general for us. But right now, it really is a huge we have very, very low turnover. And mm-hmm. part of that is we made a strategic decision not to work in the in the industries that engineers don't want to work in. Um, yeah. I would say where our bed and, bread and butter is just pure, discrete manufacturing. So, yeah. you know, any type of um you know, the midstream and supply chain. Uh, we've done a ton of work in oil and gas initially that really funded all of our development oil and gas pays a huge premium when they have a lot of money because they want everything done, you know, two weeks ago. So <laughs> we, use, we use that money to basically fund our development in discrete manufacturing. We're doing a lot in food and beverage right now. Okay. We're doing a lot in tier one automotive. Um, we're doing printing flexible packaging I would say food and beverage tier one automotive are probably the two biggest industries we're in right now. We have two big projects with, um, life sciences companies, pharmaceutical companies, but those, that's on the R and D side, not on the commercial side. One of the, one of the strategies we've decided to do is, is focus on changing the way R and D handles the acquisition of data and its conversion into information. And then they can use that to drive the improvement on the commercial side of the business. So for those of you that don't know, life sciences, you know, every pharmaceutical company has a research and development division that creates the new drugs. And not only do they create it there, but then they learn, they learn how to manufacture it at scale there in a a lab. And then once they've decided this is how we're going to manufacture at scale, then they send it to the commercial side of business who does manufacture it at scale. The research and development side is not nearly as regulated as the commercial side. The commercial side is going to the customer. So mm-hmm. that therefore, regulations kick in f- full blown on, on the commercial side. So right now, we're really focused on transforming pharmaceutical companies on the R&D side. But again, that's a, an edge case because not every pharmaceutical company, um, you know, some of them buy the drugs, they buy the intellectual property and then manufacture it. So we're doing a yeah. lot of contract, contract manufacturing too as well.
0: Yeah, the CDMO space is, is really booming for us as well in terms of recruitment on that side. Well, the reason I asked about the industries was I was keen to understand if you're finding that there are certain industries that are adopting these changes and are adopting this co-education style, or are you finding some industries are laggards, for, for want of a better word? Are you, are you finding a clear distinction between different sectors?
1: Yeah, so I would say um, the, orga- um, the organizations that are... Um, really investing in Industry 4.0 are those who are not focused on um, the the quarterly earnings. Okay. So they're pl- they're playing the long game. So um, it's companies that have transformative and disruptive leadership. So yep. um, it's companies who have technologists at the helm and not MBA. So the <laughs> I, the best CEO right now, the best CEO right now in manufacturing is going to be either. a a mechanical or manufacturing engineer, uh, a physicist who went back and got an MBA. That is your, that's your perfect CEO. If you're, (laughs) if you come from the finance side, if you come from, um, if you come, uh, you could come from IT um, as long as you were transformative as a leader. That is, (laughs) you, you look at IT as compliance and security and go, you know what, they really need to be a service organization. But the the CEO, the best CEOs right now are the ones who are asking this question. Who is our employee of the future? Mm. Okay. Though the companies who are led by those CEOs, they're all digitally transforming. And here's why. Um, Most young people, and you already experienced this, Gen Zers and millennials don't want to work in a traditional manufacturing environment. Why? Mm. Is it because manufacturing sucks. No, manufacturing is awesome. Building stuff is awesome. It's, it's, it's because it's because they are, they are going into um, when they walk into a manufacturing facility, the typical manufacturing facility, they feel like they've gone backwards 50 years. You got to remember Gen Z's and millennials were born with a smartphone in their lap. The smartphone Mm -hmm. was, you know, came out in 2008. And today in 2022, every human being who has a smartphone is an Android. We are connected to all of human knowledge, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The employee of the future, the Gen Zer and the millennial, is a technologist who is accustomed to solving their own problems without talking to other people. So if you're an organization who puts your internet on lockdown, if you're an organization whose IT department thinks that people who work on the plant floor can't be trusted to plug a USB thumb drive. (laughs) Therefore we have to lock everything down. If you're, if you're an organization who blocks Slack or teams or Facebook messenger, if you're doing those things, you will not be able to hire Gen Z's or millennials because they walk in to these facilities and go, okay, boomer, what, what is, what is going on here? (laughs) You need to be focused. The best organizations are the organizations who have CEOs who are focused on creating the environment that the employee of the future wants to work in. So what is that environment? What is that environment? They want to be able to work remote. They want to be be able to always be at work and always be at home, okay? Mm -hmm. They want to always be at work and always be at home. They're accustomed to that. They're accustomed to being everywhere all the time. So the idea, the idea that you are going to be plugged into work um, that you're going to be plugged into work only eight to four Monday through Friday, or only second shift Monday through Friday. It's absurd. (laughs) that, That concept is absurd. So the best organizations right now are the organizations who have transformative leadership. And so, and that, and that's across many different sectors. Now, where does transformative leadership come from? Well, I think in publicly traded companies, it's when the board of directors sees the train coming down the tracks and they say, we got to make a change, right? Yeah. We're, we're, in, we're in trouble, right? I mean, look at, look at Ford, look at uh, Toyota, look at General Motors. Those are, those are, those are walking dead men, mm-hmm. okay? I mean, uh, General Motors has zero chance. Let me say this, General <laughs> Motors has zero chance of surviving the fourth industrial revolution as a car manufacturer, zero chance. Why? Because Mary Barra is not a transformative leader, okay? She she does not get it. And Mm. therefore, by extension, General Motors Board of Directors does not get it. it. But when you walk into the room, walk into the the C-suite and you talk to a transformative leader, you know this leader gets it. And it's all about enablement, it's all mm. about creating the environment, the infrastructure and the digital strategy that you turn over to the rank and file and say, start solving our problems, by yeah. starting to solve your problems, that those are the companies that get it. Those are the companies that, that makes work. a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. So that makes so much sense and um, again I think it's the way you break things down Walker to really kind of that, that easy to, to absorb message so. But as part of your qualification, and when looking to, to new manufacturers to bring on clients, is that really an area that you focus on, that leadership of the business? What, what kind of leadership is in place? Is that something that you look at? Because, I mean, for me, that's not something I would have considered, really. Is that leadership ready? Is it transformative? Is it enabling? But is that really where your qualification starts with that company?
1: It, it starts with, um, the answer is yes. That's one-fifth of where it starts. Okay. Okay. So So we have a process. (laughs) We we have this process called the digital transformation maturity assessment. Okay. Okay. When we engage with a client, when we engage with a manufacturer that we ask really two questions. Number one, does that company have a digital strategy? That is, can they tell you their digital strategy in three sentences or less? Can the executive leadership tell you, this is how by us becoming a digital company, we are gonna provide value to our shareholders or to our ownership. Most companies, most legacy companies don't have it. If you go to Tesla, they got it. You go to Amazon, they got it, okay, right? So we start with, do they have a digital strategy? If they have a digital strategy, then we ask, do they have an open architecture? That is an architecture based on common technology of edge-driven report by exception, lightweight open architecture technology. If those two answers are no, then we have to start with the digital transformation maturity assessment. That's the educational phase. Okay. There are five pillars. There are 10 pillars that they get scored on. So what we do is we go in, we generally spend between a week and three weeks with that client and we're going to score them against all other manufacturers across 10 pillars um, in our data set. And I think we have uh, 1300 manufacturers are in our data set that have been scored across these 10 pillars, and they know where they are on a bell curve. They know okay. where they are right now relative to other manufacturers in the sample set. 1,300 is a huge number, right? Mm-hmm. So what are the five groups that we talk to? We talk to executive leadership. We talk to operations. We talk to IT. We talk to quality. And we talk to uh, engineering and maintenance, right? Uh, yeah. Um, and then we do breakout sessions. When mm-hmm. we are in the executive leadership meeting. When we're in the executive leadership meeting, what we're trying to ascertain is just three things. Number one, do they know that the, the smartest people in their organization work on the plant floor? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, we keep going. Do How do they you face different... that question? Let me ask you that ask one. one. I just ask them blunt. directly. Yeah, I <laughs> ask them directly. So most, most of the time clients are now, we have many people in our organization who do the DTMAs, um, who, they're the architects who lead them. But me personally, what I tell everyone else when they're doing a DTMA is don't do the DTMA the way I do it. They'll sit in and watch me how I do it. But I say, do it the way you would do it, right? The way I would do it is just ask the executives bluntly, right? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a very wealthy person. They, may, they probably make 25 million a year. I, I'm worth way more, more than them. So I'm not intimidated by, mm. by them, number one. That's pro- probably part of it. But also I've learned that executive leaders they want to cut through the bullshit or, you know, they, they don't, they don't want, um, you know, they, they want execution. Right. So g- give me, let's get down to brass tacks. So the first question I ask them is, do you believe you guys are the smartest people in the organization, or is it the people who do the actual work on the plant floor? And obviously they say it's the people on the plant floor and they, and they generally mean it. Right. Okay. So number two, we ask them digital strategy, right? So I'll say, what is your digital strategy? And most of the time, Um, you might get somebody who pulls out a PowerPoint slide that's got four pages and this is our, I'll say that's not a strategy. A strategy (laughs) is a sentence. It's a sentence that everyone in your organization can recite, three sentences, right? Um, And here's why that matters. Digital transformation, that journey between an industry 3.0 company and industry 4.0 company happens in two giant steps for organizations, okay? The first step takes three to five years. And that's just becoming a smart company. That's just becoming a smart digital company. And that, ha- that is the process of connecting to smart stuff, collecting, storing data, analyzing, visualizing, finding patterns in that data, predicting, reporting, and solving problems. Yeah. That journey across a huge organization could take three to five years, that first huge step. Second big step, plugging into a digital supply chain. Every manufacturer is used to talking to only the links in the supply chain directly upstream and only the links directly downstream. A digital supply chain is a hub and spoke where all links in the supply chain talk to one another through common technology. So I can collect data, not just from my direct customer, but from my customers' customers. Okay. Yeah. Digital smart companies make products that get better after customers buy them. Okay. That makes sense. They are, they become data companies. So we, we say to them, we ask them, digital strategy, what is the digital strategy to, t- to do your first two steps? And they realize at that point, wow, we're, we're, in, we're probably in trouble, okay? Yeah. And then number three, we ask them, describe the employee of the future to us. Yeah. Describe the employee of the future to us. And, and from that moment, coming out of the executive leadership, what invariably happens is there's one or two members in the executive leadership who say, I've been wanting to do this for five years. You know, we need your help. And they'll say, what are, what are the strategies to, mm-hmm. to get us there? And, you know, the reality is, is that all you start solving problems on the plant floor and work your way up. Yeah, start, that makes sense. Start, start solving the problems you're aware of, right? Um, and, um, and, and, and understand that digital transformation is about exponentially increasing the collective knowledge of your organization. Yeah. So- your whole business gets smarter, okay? If what you want, the the problems I want to solve, what we want, the problem I want to solve is a function of what I know, okay? The problems we want to solve as an organization is a function of what we know as an organization. If digital transformation is about exponentially increasing the collective knowledge of an organization, then it naturally follows that what you want to fix is going to also exponentially increase. And this is where most companies get in trouble. This is scale. Yeah. This, is why, this is why picking the right technology, having the right strategy and using the right partners is so important because yeah. anybody can build a proof of concept that provides value. But very, very few strategies, technologies and partners have the ability to t- take that, salute that value created in proof of concept and scale it within the paradigm of understanding that as I get smarter, I'm gonna wanna, make, I'm gonna wanna change things at the speed yeah. of light right?
0: No, that makes a sense. So, so I'm curious on this one. So when you go in and you do the digital strategy, how many companies do you, you know, is there a percentile that you would say 50%, 80%, hundred percent of companies have that digital, digital strategy nailed and, and can really recite those three sentences, or are you finding less
1: and less companies actually can do that? 10, 10%, one in, 10% one in 10. Yeah, I would say one in 10 wow. have the actual digital strategy. Um, so we have, if you, if you go, if you go, we have a program called mastermind on IOT.university. So two of our key programs are mentorship, which is where we train engineers and uh, software developers on how to support these initiatives. So it's all the technical training. And then mastermind is teaching the leaders how to lead these initiatives, right? Okay. Part of that mastermind program is we teach you the workflow. So what are the prerequisites before you take the next step, right? Yes. It's an iterative process. Digital transformation happens iteratively, right? I solve a problem and then I solve another problem and then I solve another problem. But I do that in a way where the problem I'm building right now is going to be the shoulders upon which the thing I solve tomorrow is going to stand on. Mm. One of the big differences, you asked about engineers, right? Or when you're hiring talent, what's the difference between industry 3.0 and 4.0? Industry 3.0 professionals do not consider how is my data going to be consumed. It doesn't mm-hmm. consider how, how when, if, I'm, if I'm a machine builder, I never ask the question from within the industry 3.0 perspective, how does this fit into the much larger digital architecture of this company? Mm-hmm. The industry 4.0 professional asks that question because, yeah. because I'm going to generate data and consume information from an infrastructure to make this business smarter. In in Industry 4.0, right? So there is, in Mastermind, there is a workflow. We teach the iterative process. We teach leaders all how to check these boxes off so to make sure that you, we call it not painting yourself into a corner. Don't create technical debt. Stay in the center of the room. Make sure you build a team. In the beginning, your team is made up of only true believers. No cavemen, yes. no no citizens against virtually <laughs> everything. Right? You win over the cavemen by solving their problems, but you Ooh. solve the initial problems uh, with a team of true believers. So okay,
0: no, that, that's really interesting. Again, so we're coming towards the end of the the recording now, Walker. I was curious to understand. You know, you've obviously got the uh, augmented education piece, which you're doing with the university. And then obviously it sounds like you're educating manufacturers as well. But what, what's the future for you? Ed? Do you see yourself progressing more down the educational route and helping you know, the next generation, millennial generation get further up? Or where, are you, where, where let me start again. What's the five-year plan for you?
1: <laughs> yeah, so from a technical perspective, I also have a data science firm, okay? And, okay. Um, and right now what we're doing is we, we are converting data into pattern matching and predicting um, how to create value for okay. Uh, clients, okay? Um, so right now, a huge focus for us right now is machine learning and artificial intelligence. You know, you've, you know, remember the, 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 the manufacturer's gotta go through two huge steps. And that yeah. first step becoming a smart digital company can take three to five years. But once you get through that, once you're mature, you. Percent through that first three to five years, you can start converting, looking for patterns in data, okay, and you can predict future outcomes. More, okay. more importantly, if I can predict failure, and I can monitor success, then I can write. I can use deep learning and neural networks to um, make uh, suggest optimal operational adjustments that yeah. mitigate mitigate the possible failure. So not just flagging and st- saying, we may predict that we're going to have this, we're going to, we're going to fall short on the shipping date, or, or we may predict, Hey, it's wrong for us to do product ACB. We should do product ABC in order Mm. instead of a change over to C change over to B, we should go a change over to B change over to C that's optimal. It's one thing to predict that that's not optimal. It's another thing to recommend what is optimal. And that's the part that we're focused on. That's the piece we're focused on here over the next five years. And then the last thing is there's a Third prong to my, my vision. Our, my mission is to help save and create middle-class jobs in the United States. I have many companies, but I have, you know, IntelliC integration and 4.0 Solutions achieve that mission, number one, IntelliC through helping the manufacturer as a systems yeah. integrator. 4.0 Solutions does it by helping train the engineers and the professionals who help the manufacturer. And then yes. we also have a foundation in my mom's name, the Bonnie Mae Austin Foundation, um, that where we raise money, to put kids who are the victims of domestic violence, that is, uh, you know, if generally if I lose a parent to domestic violence, I lose both parents. One one's dead and one goes to prison. So mm-hmm. we have a foundation where we, we, um, we sponsor kids. We raise money and sponsor kids to send them to school. And our goal, our, our big mission here is uh, we have our first couple of scholarship at, uh, students is, you know, five years from now, I want to hire one of those kids out of college. Yeah. And, 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 and join this, this journey with us. So, you know, it's two pieces. It's the data science component, but then it's also the, the, you know, the, the changing the world component, which is my focus over the next five years.
0: Wow. No, really, re- really impressive. And I thoroughly enjoy the conversation, Walker. Obviously, hearing how busy you are, how much you've got going on, how many plates you're spinning. I'm even more um, grateful for you spending an hour with me. So, um, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. It's been educational. I'm sure the listenership is going to quite great value as well. So, yeah, thanks for your time.
1: Appreciate you, Daniel. Thank you.